0: This is Epopedia, and I am your host Chisom. Today my special guest is Dr Ngozi Ediosagi, a consultant neonatologist and associate medical director at St Mary's Hospital in Manchester. Born in Manchester to Nigerian father and Caribbean mother, Dr Ngozi left the UK aged 11 to live in Nigeria where she later trained and qualified as a doctor at the University of Benin. Dr. Ngozi is a clinical lead for the development of a single hospital service across the city of Manchester and is involved in external investigations and peer review of services. She is also the co-chair of the community collaborative partnership between Manchester University Foundation Trust and the Greater Manchester Caribbean and African Health Network. In this episode, we will discuss her early life, her career in pediatrics, and yes, since we're in the middle of a global pandemic, we will also talk about COVID. Yes, it's great to have you on. There's so much to discuss, but let's start from the beginning. Which part of Igbo land are you from?
1: So I'm from Anisha, and I think that, well, no, I know that is a number state.
0: Okay, excellent. And growing up in Manchester, who or what influenced you the most? Well, that's,
1: that's a difficult question because I had lots of influences. Um, so one of my really big influences was my father who was from Onisha and he made sure I have, I'm one of four, I'm the eldest of four children, that the fact that we were from not just Nigerian, that we were Anisha, from Onisha and that we're Igbo was a really big part of our growing up. So he taught us um, Igbo songs, um, we all have Igbo names, we christened with our Igbo names and those were, those were our christening names. I remember friends of his said to him that, um, that they're not Christian names. And he said, well, how much more Christian can you get? And Ngozi means blessing. Yes. So we were all christened in church with our evil Christi- names.
0: And age 11, though, you and your family returned to Nigeria. Can you talk about the, that experience, how you felt when you first landed from the plane into Lagos?
1: So it was, um, so before we went, um, we were really well prepared. I remember friends in school and family saying, Aren't you worried? Because this was in the 70s and the concept of, well, they didn't say Nigeria then, they said Africa, was that it was, you wouldn't have all the amenities you had here. So most of my friends in school were really quite disparaging about the fact that we're going to leave sort of civilization and go somewhere else. Hmm. Um, my my grandmother and my aunties, they were more sort of circumspect. But I'm sure that they were a bit concerned or worried as well because and the other thing was that you weren't um, I'd grown up around my grandmother. At the other person that was a big influence with my grandmother because I spent a lot of time with her with two working parents, you rely on Um, other family members to help you bring up the children and my grandmother's a a big part of my life so although we're well prepared I remember being quite shocked at the airport when my granny started to cry and my auntie started to cry I remember thinking that's how prepared we were I didn't even think about the fact that they would miss us I'd miss anybody Um, because my my father painted this picture of having lots of fruit sunlight and every time it was winter he'd say you know when we get to Nigeria, it's not going to be like this. Mm. So I was really well prepared. All of us were, and we were excited and we're looking forward to it. But I remember the first time when I landed, it was the colours. You know, in the 70s, coats were either black or brown or grey. I'd never seen a red coat. I mean, it's different now where you see different colours and everybody's quite fashionable. But in the 70s, everything was really dry up in England. And I got there and there was this... There was colour. It almost, it hit you in the face. First of all, the heat. Hmm. And then the colours and the smells. It felt you could actually put your hand out and grab them. They were just so rich. And there were things I didn't expect to see because you don't know what you don't know. So when I saw billboards with black people, that's when I realised I've never seen a billboard with a black person on it. It's not something you think of because it's just never there. I remember the journey from the airport to my uncle's house, just, you know, your head was just swinging ninth degrees. You just couldn't take it all in. It was, it was fantastic.
0: It sounds like a really positive experience and not surprisingly, because as you described, Nigeria is just so vibrant and full of life. That's um, the word, vibrant. But talk, talk about uh, your school experience. So initially, were there some not so positive experiences that you felt?
1: Well, most things were positive, but then... I think the, the thing that hit me when, once I started school, so meeting relatives was fantastic. Um, and then when you start school, you realise that because one of the things I was really looking forward to be is not being different. I remember saying to my brothers and sisters that at last we will not be different. We'll be the same as everybody else. We won't stick out because you're used to being the sticky out person when you're in school in England. Yeah. Um, and you got there and You were a different in a way, because although everybody was black, your accent was different. And some of the ways you thought about things were different. And after, because you are children, um, I went to a boarding school, you you do assimilate, but girls, I went to a girls boarding school. And, you know, the, what you were like in, in the first year follows you final year so anytime you have an argument with somebody they'll say uh, some disparaging comment about either your accent or your views or something like that and then um but most of the time i found um secondary school a largely positive experience
0: good and uh, presumably your university experience you've talked about this before but that was sounded like a very that's when you really came into your own and had a great experience as well
1: i thought university was wonderful and I have lifelong friends, friends that I met there that are my friends today and will be my friends until I'm no longer here. Um, so that was very, very positive. Um, it was that the music that was around at the time, um, I managed to balance both, have a good social life. Um, you know, it was it was a great experience.
0: Well, speaking of music, I often ask my guests about the Desert Island recommendations. So imagine the scenario where you're cast away to Desert Island, but you can take some things with you. What would be your top three music tracks or artists? So I, I had, I've had some time to think about this
1: and um, I love Afrobeats. And so I think I couldn't go without an Afrobeat track. So my top one at the moment is um, one called Anybody by Burna Boy. I can listen to that 10 times over. I can just listen to it on repeat. I love that record. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love Burner Boy and all that, but that's my my top one. And I remember um, I just came across it on, on iTunes. And the day I heard it, I think I played it just nonstop for three hours. The first time, I hadn't heard it anywhere apart. I just heard it. I just picked it up. <laughs> so I, I love that. I like um Happy by Pharrell because every time I hear it it just lifts me so I I really like that track um so um I take that with me because I find music uplifting and um Burner Boy makes me want to dance Pharrell is just really uplifting and I think even if when you're a bit down just put on some music and you're lifted up and my 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 other one would have been um there's a jazz pianist called Matt Klein. And he does some really they're, they're just just beautiful music. Just beautiful music. And um lastly was a song that my dad played all the time. My dad was a great fan of napkin Cole. Mm. In fact, he didn't call him Nat King Cole. He gave him a middle Igbo name because he said to him that, he said to us that he must be Igbo. That's that's how much indoctrinated we were. And I believed him. It's only years later that I thought, there's nothing to do with Igbo land. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad used to call him um, Nat Okeke Cole. I, I thought that was his name. <laughs> I haven't heard
0: that one before, but that's that's original. <laughs> he, he was christened Igbo, even though he wasn't. Yeah
1: so I, I thought I thought it was Ibo so <laughs> um and so every time I hear any of his tracks I think of my dad because we had them all the time around the house and there's a particular song called smile and my dad was really jovial and I remember every time his friends came round to the house there'd always be lots of laughter He was always cracking jokes he was
0: a sort of uh he was very outgoing so I think those four would keep me going very good and I guess this wouldn't be a podcast during a co- uh, global pandemic if we didn't touch upon COVID. Uh, you run a weekly health hour uh, with the videos available on YouTube to discuss certain medical topics. And one of your most well-attended sessions included Nadeem Zahawi, the Minister for Vaccine Deployment in the UK. How did this come about?
1: So we've been running, so I am I, the medical lead for um a non-profit organization called the Caribbean African Health Network and so during the pandemic one of the things they started to do was to run a Saturday Health Hour amongst other things. They've got lots of things they do during the week and I began to help to facilitate these sessions about December Um, and I've been doing that ever since. And it's a weekly Saturday one, one and a bit sessions and we try and get doctors um, every week to talk about different topics that they're interested in. And just after we had the vaccine, um, I don't know what your WhatsApp is like, but I've got WhatsApp groups from all over the place. And the videos and messages I was receiving about the COVID vaccine were quite worrying because there was a lot of misinformation. And there seemed to be a vacuum because it was almost whoever shouts loudest. So most of the messages I would receive were negative. The worrying thing was that I I believed that the vaccines were the way out of this pandemic. You know, we spent a lot of time not being with our loved ones, the hospitals being overwhelmed, um, people dying um, prematurely. And so I felt vaccines were a way out. And so I'd been vaccinated. And I thought in this vacuum of misinformation, there isn't a lot of people who are listening to um, alternative, um, alternative views. So there weren't many messages on the WhatsApp platforms that were saying, have the vaccine. So I thought to myself, instead of having a regular Saturday health hour where we ask colleagues to come on and talk about a health topic, I thought I would ask 10 of my colleagues, black colleagues who have had the vaccine to just come on and talk about why they had it. So we usually have um, about 80 people who log on on a Saturday to listen to our health hours. And we have a very varied number of topics. And I spoke to uh, the chair of Cannes, um, Charles, and I said to him, you know what, we'll get a poster with, our, with the 10 doctors on it and just say this, this week, instead of having our regular medical session, just come and listen to why we have the vaccine. I just lying on the couch thinking that this might be a good idea. So I discussed it with him. He said, yeah, well, let's go for it. So we produced the poster. We put it out on the Monday. And by Tuesday evening, we had 200 people. So I thought, oh, this is a bit different. By Wednesday, it was 400. And by Friday, it was over 1,000. And that's when I realised, I don't know whether you know, but I think the maximum on Zoom is 1,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, um we then had people watching on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, and then we had something, we, we gave a platform to put your questions forward before the day because we then realized that with this with this many people for just an hour, that we wouldn't be able to answer all their questions. So, um, so we attempted to provide some answers to answer the questions beforehand. But this was a day that I hadn't, really thought of an agenda. I was just gonna go around the room with the 10 colleagues. And when I called them up or the weekend before, they said, I said, if you have the vaccine yeah, will you come on our platform? What do you want me to do? Just say why you had it. So there was really no agenda. So by the Friday I thought, we do need an agenda now. And so I gathered up my colleagues together at 8 p.m. So from 8 to 9 p.m. We discussed what we we're going to talk about and we ran the session. And there were many, many questions because this was early January, and people were definitely quite concerned. And um, and I think what had been recognised as well by our vaccines minister that there were some specific communities that were really were very more concerned, very very concerned about having the vaccine. So he was, um, it was he came along and we did our normal hour, and he
0: used another half hour to answer questions that were put to him. So let's touch on a few of these topics. Um, first thing, is it safe? So we know that the vaccine has been tested. Um, it's gone through the regulators. But has it been tested on pregnant women? Is it safe for pregnant women? Is it safe for people with autoimmune disorders? Is it safe for children? How, how safe is it? So i say the common questions
1: that we get, so some of, these are some of them, but the, other, the common questions, before I come to those, the commonest ones are... Um, that we've had malaria, HIV around for a long time and COVID is a relatively new um, disease. How come you develop the vaccine so quickly? Um, There were concerns that it was tested when they did the initial trials that there weren't enough black people involved. So how do we know it's safe for black people? So I'll just address those. And the way I try to describe when I've given talks about this is that there was lots of collaboration and there was lots of money and the two things that um, make it difficult for things to happen quickly in healthcare is red tape and lack of, of cash. Anything to do with Covid was accelerated. It's almost like saying that um, and then there was money, there was a lot of money put into it and that's, that's another sticking point for projects because you need to pay the people who are um, designing the trials, who are involved in the trials you need to pay volunteers. And if you lack cash, you cannot do those things at pace. And and one of the analogies I've I've heard is like, you're taking a trip from Birmingham to London on an A road and you have to stop each time you get to a red light. What the government did was change all those red lights to green. So it probably would have taken me between Birmingham and London, three hours. It took half an hour because they ensured that all those lights were green. So that was one of the main concerns that people were saying that this cannot be right. The other concern was about the number of black people that were in the trials and, and all the trials they did have black people in them. But in actual fact, there are not, they're not many vaccines that are um, ethnicity specific. So all the vaccines that we take now, um, everybody takes them. And there are, the, most of our genes are the same, irrespective of um, ethnicity. I say for pregnant women, the advice has changed over the course since the vaccine started. So in the beginning, because pregnant women were excluded from um, the trials, they didn't have information. However, what they did know was that some people, because um, there are quite a lot of pregnancies that are not planned, some people didn't know they were pregnant and then had the vaccine. So they did have data on what happened, but it wasn't as part of the trial protocol to include pregnant people. What we're seeing now is because a large large number of the population has had vaccines, and um, at the beginning pregnant women, because the advice wasn't as strong as it could have been, and they didn't come forward for their vaccines, we're now seeing that there are lots of pregnant people being affected. So in actual fact the advice is now incontrovertible that you should have vaccines, you should be vaccinated even if you're pregnant. In your immunosuppression. Um, we'd advise to get vaccines because we know that if you get COVID and you, you're immunosuppressed, that, that can have quite an effect on you. So the advice is to, to get vaccinated if you have if you're immunosuppressed. Um, children, it's currently the advice is over the age of 18. I think there's discussions about over the age of 16, but it's always been over the age of 18 because of, of um, the trials. So the advice um, and the protocols are based on what they tested on, and in the beginning, they didn't test on children. So they then did additional trials to test on on children because we need to see whether they safe.
0: And speaking of children, my next question or topic is about ethics. What do you say to people who say, I won't vaccinate my children because it's not fair to be vaccinating 16, 17, 18 year olds in countries like Europe and the US when healthcare workers in developing countries have not yet been vaccinated.
1: I think that's a a fairly valid point. And I think that this is a global pandemic and we've seen what happened when the Delta variant came in from another country. So we need to have a global approach to this problem because we will never be completely watertight. And we are now a multicultural um, society in in Britain where lots of people travel, they have relatives all over the world. And so I think we need to approach this in a a global way. And it might not be an either or um, debate. Um, I think that there are enough resources to do both.
0: Let's talk about your medical career. So you actually returned to the UK, to Manchester, in your twenties, following the passing of your father in St. Mary's Hospital in the city. And you're the third generation of your family to have worked there. Your grandmother was a cook in the hospital, your mother a nurse, and now you're a consultant. Did you always intend to return to that particular um, hospital to pursue a medical career? What was the journey to that?
1: Um, no, I, I didn't. And, um, you know, when you set out to be a doctor, for most people, it's, um, you think about working with patients. And so even when I became a consultant, the way my career's ended up, I probably wouldn't have um, predicted that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, which is, I suppose, only about a quarter of my work involves looking after babies. I'm a neonatologist, and that's looking after babies who become ill straight after birth. So that's my medical bit, but I do lots of other things that are unrelated to looking after patients. I suppose Manchester was a natural place to come back to when my father died because I had close relatives. So my grandmother was still alive. Um, My mum had siblings in Manchester and still does. So we had a network of family and friends that we could use as a resource. And I ended up doing there was this horrible exam you had to do called PLAB. If you speak to doctors who have qualified outside um, the UK, it's a sort of conversion exam you've got to do. So I did that and I always wanted to do pediatrics. And so I started my pediatric training. We, when I got married, we toyed with the idea of thinking that, you know, when we're consultants, we'd like to live near a beach, you know, but then you end up being at the right place in the right place at the right time and a job comes up and you apply and you get it. And I was lucky that we could both work in the same hospital as well. What
0: would you say uh, has been the single biggest highlight of your medical career so far?
1: Oh, that's really difficult. That, that is just impossible because no on one hand, um, you went into this to look after patients. And therefore, there are times when you have a really good outcome or there are particular patients that resonate with you. I've been a consultant now for almost 20 years. So that along the journey, there are patients that resonate with you because either you thought they weren't going to do well, and they did fantastically well. Um, so because that was a principal reason why you went into medicine, will always, there will always be a special place in your heart for patients that beat the odds and survive and thrive, not just survive, but thrive. So that's been a real highlight, just a number of patients. And it's a real privilege. You know, how many other professions are you there at the beginning of life? And that that family remembers you forever. You know, I consider it to be such a privilege to be part of these people, of these families lives. So it's a continuous highlight, you know, but, I would say that some of the positions that I've been able to do um, have meant that I've been able to influence things. So currently, I'm the head of division for neonatal services across um, um, the city of Manchester. And that is a position of influence where I can ensure that the babies in Greater Manchester are getting the best treatment that they should have. And also if there are aspects of care that I feel could be, we could could get better, I can can do something about that. I've also given a voice to make sure that our parent representation is is good. Um, The other thing I do is that I'm the chair of the neonatal critical care um, CRG, which means that I oversee neonatal services in England. And one of the things that I really believe in is that we should have strong patient representation. But when we look at parents and patient reps across UK for neonatal services, one of the things is that they're not paid. Now, if a parent, parent representation is not a gap, because that means you can only give your time and effort and energy if you're fairly comfortable. And if you want to increase diversity, knowing that Black people are more likely to be um, in the lower socioeconomic groups. You're not going to have them step forward to step up and join these committees to make a difference. Now in paternity services, they've changed that because their Maternity Voices Partnership, which is for women who have had experience with maternity services, they're paid. So you have a much more diverse group of representatives. And if not, you'll be guessing when you're trying to adapt services or ensure that you have equity of access and experience if you do not have a a system where you can make sure that they are properly represented.
0: Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot uh, outside of your regular day day job as a consultant, really improving the medical situation and um, increasing equality and equity in your profession. So thank you. And thank you so much for your time today. Before we wrap up, if our listeners are interested in getting in touch or following you to find out more about your work or listening to these YouTube um, hourly sessions that you do, where can they find you?
1: The Caribbean African Health Network is on um, YouTube. If you just type in Caribbean Health African Health Network Health Hour, they will come up. And then we've had some really interesting sessions. Um, we've had sessions about um, women's health being. So when it was in in the month of March, it was March the eighth was International Women's Day, and so for the whole of the month of March, each weekend we had a speaker about women's health. So we looked at fibroids, infertility, endometriosis, well-being, health, um, your skin and hair, very important for Black women. Yeah, so we had <laughs> sessions on everything. So that was great. But not to forget men, we've had a number of sessions on. Um, Um, men's health urology and the prostate. If I say PSA and you're a man over 45, you don't know what that means, please go and look at our YouTube video from April where we looked at men's health because you should know what it means if you're a man over 45 and much more importantly, if you're a black man. Um, So look, look that up because I always think that part of it is that we need to be empowered to look after our own health Um, We've had a number of sessions on kidney disease because that's a silent killer. Um, Hypertension is really common amongst black people. If you do not check your blood pressure, then you don't know. Um, So you need to watch and learn and join us. If you can't join us on Saturday, then watch them retrospectively because I find that they're... I'm a doctor, but I haven't done hypertension since medical school, which is a long time ago now. I find them educational. I go to these sessions as a sort of layperson and listen to what they have to say. Um, They're really informative.
0: Oh, fantastic. And I will include the link to the YouTube session, our weekly sessions in the Spotify um, bio for this episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Ngozi. This has been fascinating. Thank you for your time. And thank you for being a guest on the Igbopedia podcast.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been a really nice, I don't know how long we've spent, but whatever time we spent, it's been, it's flown past. And um, thank you so much for having me. I remember when you, you said to me, I said, well, I don't think I have much to say, but I've had a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely
0: have. And it's also been very interesting too. So that's fantastic. Okay then, bye.